as you step back, and uh, so good to see each of you today. Thank you, each of you that are guests today. We are so blessed by our guests to be here together, and a uh, very special blessing to welcome Mrs. Bernie McCullough today from Western Pennsylvania. Would you just wave at us there and welcome, welcome Bernie today, being a part of this time together. Thank you so much. Oh, you may be seated just for a moment, and would you reach for one of these Bibles? We're going to do a reading a little differently uh, today for a couple of reasons, and I want to keep our children here for, for um, the first part of it, and then we'll transition and have them step out, and we're going to read again. So I, actually, this would kind of be like a, you know, one of those liturgical churches where the bulletin says, stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down. <laughs> so uh, we're going to be a little bit liturgical this way, today, okay? So, but what I'll ask you to do first is find... Isaiah chapter 44, Isaiah chapter 44, and it's on page 835 in the Bibles in the pews, and then we're going to be moving to Colossians for our reading, but today I think of um, first an announcement, an important announcement for everybody. Please remember to check that sign-up sheet on the back, both of the sign-up sheets, the uh, joining us on the, on the church picnic Sunday two weeks from today. Just join us and bring uh, a couple of dishes that go along with our, our hot dogs and, and hamburgers, and we're going to have a blast. It's, it's going to be a, a real joy um, to just have this time together. Uh, looking forward to seeing everybody that is willing to go get wet in the water slide. It's just been so much fun each time with, with our kids and adults all just getting completely soaked. So bring a towel, change of clothes. Feel free to dress casual, of course, for Sunday morning as well, whatever works out well for you. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 8, number page 835, is also a kind of, a, of, a, of an immersion, a splashdown into God's promise of the Holy Spirit's refreshing. And today, in the midst of a very busy summer, and I'm sure for many people a stressful summer of various types, as well as all the fun and activities and outings that are going on, we need to know in a fresh and personal way the dynamic ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised the disciples, it's necessary for you that I go away. And, and if you had been, can you imagine, if you'd been in person with Jesus for, for months, in the case of most of those disciples, almost three years, and, and he says, it's necessary for you that I leave you. <laughs> wow. That would be a hard thing to absorb, wouldn't it? And then he goes on that night before he was betrayed and scourged and crucified, and he, then he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send the paraclete, and he'll come alongside you, and he'll be with you. Well, in every way, the Holy Spirit's ministry for us today, we must grasp anew. He is here. He's here. And Isaiah 44 gives a a kind of a, an immersion, a splashdown into one of the pro prophesied purposes of the paraclete. And that is to know, listen, that there's never a day in your life that you cannot find the wondrous refreshing of the Holy Spirit. doesn't mean every question is answered. It doesn't mean every hurt is healed. It doesn't mean every disappointment vanishes. But the Holy Spirit's presence encircles and envelops us. So I want to ask you to hear that and read it, and I love for our boys and girls to be reading aloud the Word of God with us. This is a lesser-known section, so I want our boys and girls to stand with us, and moms and dads and everybody. Let's stand and read Isaiah 44, verses 1 through 6, 
as a foreshadowing, Old Testament foreshadowing, of what Jesus promised the paraclete would do. That is, bringing, in verse 3, floods of water upon your soul. So we read the whole context, verses 1 to 6. Let's read aloud together Isaiah 44. Yet hear now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They will spring up among the grass like willows by the watercourses. One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Back up for a moment before we dismiss our children and notice that this promise of verse 3 is a pouring of an abundance of water on those that are thirsty. In each place where it speaks of the identification with Israel and Jacob, that's prophetic of the new Israel, of what God has sent through Christ to bring us into that full covenant promise. So there's a sense in which it's prophesying and predicting what it means to be born again by trusting in Christ that you could say, I am the Lord's. I belong to him. Christ is my redeemer. And concluding in that sixth verse with the Lord declaring, there is no other. I am the true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in that third verse, receive anew today. I believe it's very vital that we do this. It's vital that we do this as a church body. Lord, your Holy Spirit brings a refreshing. No human words could ever bring. No human touch could ever bring. No human experience could ever bring. It is your promise, the paraclete, when Jesus said, it's expedient for you that I go away. For then, in that due time, in that hour of his resurrection glory, breathing upon the apostles and saying, receive ye the Holy Spirit. So Lord, today, bring to every heart anew afresh the dynamic reality of that Isaiah 44, 3, I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. And it's from this that the dynamic of real growth takes place in every heart. In Jesus' name, Amen. Would you put the Bibles down a moment? Let's give God some praise from our hands and our hearts together today. Let's give him glory and praise. Let's give God glory and praise. Make some noise in the house. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We're grateful to you, Lord. Amen. And our boys and girls, my goodness, you know, it's so close to the heart uh, that boys and girls are receiving uh, what these promises mean. Okay, then I said I was going to second reading. I'm going to keep you on your feet a minute more. Go to Colossians chapter 4, and we're going to read together um, this very remarkable section that closes the epistle to the Colossians in a, in a fashion that um, I find especially fascinating in light of what real 
real heart-to-heart companionship as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ can mean for us. And we're reading together today in um, Colossians chapter 4, and I'd like to begin back at verse 6 where we uh, touched on for briefly last week about uh, the, the redeeming of the time, this principle of kairos. God says, I, I place you in your life with the assurance because of the Holy Spirit that there's a kairos moment, there's a timing in God, he will guide you. But here's the kicker in this chapter. We don't always see the kairos moment because so many things move in a progression that looks ordinary to us. That's why we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and prepare our hearts for those moments of the Holy Spirit breaking in and helping us see, wait, this is a moment I wouldn't have recognized, that I can open my mouth to share Christ with someone, that I can come alongside someone in a time of hurt, that I can sometimes just be a quiet listener to somebody that I love, and a thousand and one other acts of obedience to the Holy Spirit. So let's read Colossians chapter 4, verses 6 through 18. A little bit of a longer reading. Thank you for joining us in the reading of God's Word. It's on page 1355, and we'll begin in verse 6 of Colossians 4. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord will tell you all the news about me. Let me pause and say, you'll see all these ten names on the screen in a few minutes. Don't worry, it just uh, say, you know, my brother or my sister if you want to. But, uh, but the names are unusual. Okay, let's go to verse 8. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will make known to you all things which are happening here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Hey, how many of you would welcome John Mark in this place today? I know you would. Amen. Hallelujah. All right, verse 11. And Jesus, who is called Justice, are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision they have proved to be a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and Nymphus and the church that is in his house. Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. This salutation by my own hand, Paul, remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. Let's join for thank God for the reading of his word. Father, thank you today. When we hear the word of God in all the varied forms and expressions, even the forms of literature by which you planned 
to breathe into Scripture your eternal inerrant plan for the redemptive work of grace in every generation. We ask you to give us a heart to step away from the distractions of our world and to enter into a clear and open-hearted receptivity to the facts that you lay before us. Lord, we know how deeply we need you, but here we see by these 10 individuals that were in a part of a circle of the, of the support system and the companionship of the Apostle Paul that we need each other deeply. And thank you for this church. Thank you for what it means to have in the most humblest of expressions the fact that we walk alongside one another in covenant grace. In the mighty name of Jesus we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Probably most people remember the name that became famous 69 years ago this summer, Edmund Hillary, when he accomplished that incredible feat of reaching the summit of, of Mount Everest. But most people would not have heard or might not recognize the name of Tinzing, the trusted Sherpa mountain guide who helped um, Edmund Hillary in 1953 to accomplish that incredible mountain climbing and record-breaking experience. Later, after the long descent and um, the various uh, activities that followed the climb of Mount Everest, there were a whole series, as one might expect, of newspaper interviews and and uh, long-form articles in magazines about uh, that crossing of that uh, human barrier and the ascent to the summit of Mount Everest. And in those, not only was Hillary interviewed, of course, but uh, some enterprising reporters got a hold of the, of the Sherpa and began to inquire of him, what was it like to be on this expedition with now the now famous Edmund Hillary? And one of the reporters asked Tenzing, what was it that made you want to go through all of the training and all of the planning and preparation and the labor and the danger, the risk of working alongside Edmund Hillary? And Tenzing's answer was quick, concise, and so in interesting to me. He said simply, mountain climbers always help each other. Mountain climbers always help each other. I can imagine that possibly in the section we read together in Colossians 4 that there could be uh, quite a number of these that we're going to look at briefly who would be able to say something similar about the Apostle Paul. And that is the kingdom of God that was alive in their hearts because of the redemptive grace that they'd experienced in Christ Jesus those who were with Paul in that Roman imprisonment and those who had the freedom to come and go to visit with Paul and then the two that he addresses that were 1,243 miles away in Colossae receiving this letter when it was brought by Onesimus and Tychicus. These all could say, in other words, we walk alongside 
this champion of the gospel, the Apostle Paul, because it's just in our hearts. And one of the beautiful things about this closing section of Colossians is that having been on the mountain peak, literally the summit back in chapter 1, where we look at the eternal deity of Christ and the cosmic significance of that, and again, I want you to look in your Bible and go back to that. I hope your Bibles are open today, because I really want you to see this connection, that in your own Bible, when you look at these things, you start to realize, and all of us experience this in different places, ways, that, that God has dropped details into Scripture that are, in our first look, sometimes insignificant, and yet they remind us of vital truths that oftentimes we need deeply in our journey in Christ. And that is in this fourth chapter, this understanding of the role that great companionship, that friends play in our journey in Christ, and that our co-laboring matters in the kingdom of God, in the life of our church. And I'd like for you to look back in chapter 1 and just notice with me in verses 15 to 17 that possibly of all the truths that help us understand the cosmic significance of the Lord Jesus Christ and his redemptive glory, these verses bring it in a capsule of Scripture. Colossians 1.15, he is the image Christ, our Redeemer, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We saw weeks back when we looked at that, that that has to do with the rank and the eternal significance of the deity of Christ in the eternal Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And then finally, verse 17, caps, uh, is, the, is the capstone of this for us to understand that Christ, who is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Christ, who is before all things, enters the world as an infinitesimal embryo in the womb of the chosen virgin Mary, and God, the eternal God, becomes man. Now, we, we looked at these mountain peak uh, truths, and we, we explored it some in these snapshots of Colossians, but when we toggle back to chapter 4, and we read these uh, what feel like almost casual expressions and greetings from the Apostle Paul and mentions of various people that help him, we are given here something that for the church today, and I would say particularly for a small congregation like ours, that where we feel challenged by the fact that there are so many ways we want to see our church express a healthy and vibrant sense of closeness and togetherness and fellowship and, and uh, sharing in the journey in Christ. And yet, because we're fewer in number, it's a little more uh, of a challenge to achieve that. Than, than a church of, say, 600 people where you can break out into all these various groups. So we have a particular challenge in our generation of the smaller congregation rising to the challenge of the great truths that God's Word breathes into our lives. Now, I questioned and thought about what are some ways that we might uh, get a handle on this. So what I want to do, um, as I kind of began last week, but this week I want to focus on two other of these eight of these 10 uh, characters, 
And that is, I want to ask you to think about the whole list. If you were walking through your Bible as we were reading, if you'd had the time or you had your, your own handy Bible that you mark in, you could have, if you circled these names, you'd, you'd find 10 different names that Paul mentions. And the characteristic that I find in common, one thing, they're all very different. and That's also like the small church. We're all very different. God has brought this congregation together from many different experiences and many different spiritual backgrounds or, uh, and many different uh, even parts of the country. And so God always has a purpose, uh, whether small or large, in congregational life, God always has a purpose of helping us to taste, in principle, the very same truths that we see displayed in Scripture. So one of the things, though they're all very different, is that all ten of these names are ordinary people who God has placed on an extraordinary mission, and yet, another thing they have in common is that most of them would have had no idea how huge of a Kairos moment they were living in. Think about it. When you're receiving this letter, or if you're one of the companions there with Paul, either coming and going to his imprisonment in Rome, or in the case of Aristarchus, a fellow prisoner with him, whichever role you fit there, or uh, a, a house church leader in Colossae, um, or a faithful servant laboring in Colossae, the last character in the list, Archippus, where his last parting shot of the closing of this epistle is, tell Archippus to be sure to fulfill his ministry in the Lord. He's reminding him right before he says, grace to you and remember my chains. His last exhortation is to this guy over there in Colossae, and he's exhorting him, keep on keeping on. How many of you know God would say that to many of us in our, in our congregational life and in our kingdom walk and in our walk with Christ? But, but here I want to focus for a moment on the commonality of these ten, okay? And uh, let me give you a little textual note that's of interest that I think because I've included this in the list, and that is the, the mention of nympha uh, in, this, in this list is quite interesting in verse 15 because... Uh, we read the older version, the New King James, that translates it as his house. Uh, the scholarship is quite intriguing. And I actually went into this in some depth because I'm very interested to see how the new modern translations arrive at the fact that Nympha is actually a woman. It's not a man. And if you read ESV and NIV, you'll see that reflected. Nympha and the church that is in her house. So, being that the case, it's quite interesting, it all hinges on, I won't bore you with the details, but it's quite interesting, it, it all hinges on what scribes in 3rd and 4th century copies of Scripture dealt with a tiny punctuation mark. If you mark the name one way, it would be male, if you mark it the other way, it's female, but then the use of the, of the pronouns along with it uh, show that the more likely translation actually is that Nympha is a woman. Now, I'm not going to get off on that whole rabbit trail except to say it's quite interesting to me that in this ten names, we have nine men and one woman mentioned. I believe the scholarship supports that. And whether it does or not, these ten, the, the key that is absolutely interesting is that they are ordinary. Would you shout the word ordinary? Danny Bell 
who I don't remember her last name, Danny Bell, the famous singer in the 1970s, the sister of Andre Crouch, wrote this wonderful song. It's one of my favorite songs in 1977. It's still one of my favorite songs. And, and Danny Bell wrote this wonderful song where she said, ordinary people, God uses ordinary people. He chooses people just like you and me who are willing to do as he commands. Yes, he uses people, ordinary people, for his purpose. And then she uses the example in the bridge of just like the little lad who gave Jesus all he had. Out of the fish and the loaves of bread, a great multitude was fed. Well, just like him, what you have may not seem much. But when you yield it to the touch of the master's loving hand, then you'll understand that your life will never be the same. Ordinary people on an extraordinary mission for God. And that's true of Nympha. And the church in her house. That's true of Archippus, exhorted in Colossae by a, an epistle that was carried across land and sea for 1,243 miles to reach him from the pen of the Apostle Paul in prison in Rome to say, Archippus, keep on keeping on. Press on. Fulfill your ministry. Don't lose heart. Be who God called you to be. In all ten and in all dimensions of this text, we see that what Paul is really doing in this chapter, in this closing chapter, is that Paul is demonstrating in these names a principle that he speaks of in Corinthians and Philippians. Very quickly, I want to caps, capsize it or capsulize it for you. And that is, Paul has this clear picture, which also applies to us today, that he said, when a person is wholly sold out to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, there is a sense in which all of us are called to point everyone we know to our Savior in prayer and in trust, but there's also a sense in which God uses the friendship, the companionship, the walking alongside, yes, in some very difficult times, to help us say to others in so many words, hey, Follow Christ, yes, we're all called to follow Jesus, but also there's a sense in which we're all to join Paul in saying, follow me as I follow Christ. Maybe we might put it this way, I'm passionately following Jesus with all I've got. Hey, why don't you join me? Let's follow him together. You know, that's really what this church is all about. It is, let's follow Jesus together. Oh, we know when we say that, there's going to be some bumpy roads. We know when we say that, if we're honest, there's going to be some moments of, of, of questioning, some disillusionment, some times of, oh Lord, where do I go from here? But the common thing is, this extraordinary mission God has placed us on includes the joyous encouragement and motivation that comes from being with friends. Brothers and sisters in Christ, who we can say every, every day, I'm in this walk with you. Paul put it a different way in Philippians 4.9 when he said, Do those things which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. And the reason I highlighted that word learned is it's striking to me that, that Paul uses a verb in that text 
that is the exact same verb as Jesus uses in the Great Commission when he says, make disciples of all nations. Paul uses the same root verb in that text in Philippians 4.9. The things that you have been discipled in, we share, in other words, we share a wonderful discipleship calling, and because all of these ordinary people often have no idea how significant their role may be, they can't see the kairos moment, then sure, there are times when you're in the midst of something and you get discouraged and God brings a brother or sister along in Christ or several or we gather around one another to pray and the Holy Spirit pours that water on that dry ground and he lifts your heart and you understand something so interesting about this cast of characters around the Apostle Paul is that none of them could have understood at that moment how significant simple steps of obedience would be. They couldn't see it until the light of history shines upon it. Now, I had been thinking about all that a week and a half ago, and it was stirring in my heart, and I happened to be reading my favorite historian, David McCullough, one of his books, and in that book, I was stopped and thought for my, literally thought, a week and a half ago, you know, he, Mr. McCullough is uh, about 89 years old. I, I don't know how much longer he's going to I want to finish every book he's written, you know, and I'd love to hear him more while he's alive. And then last Sunday, uh, David McCullough passed away. And I thought it was so striking. And I wanted to bring you just a quick quote from Mr. McCullough because it's so relevant to this very text in that these, indi- these individuals could never have dreamed the role God had intended them to play on the stage. And David McCullough had said something that struck me, and it's the reason I give you this quote, that after an assignment he took on in the mid-1970s about a writing for a journal, he suddenly realized that he wanted every person to know who follows any kind of history he writes. He said that one of the things we learn is that nothing before us had the extent to which the literally known events of a given time and people who are not in the headlines can never know what that's going to mean in the long run. So he said, it's of utmost importance, I believe, to convey the sense, this is so cool, before this text on the screen, he said this, I want to convey the sense that the things, things need not have happened as they did, life in other times past, was never on a track any more than it is now or ever will be. The past, after all, is only, I love this, the past, after all, is only another name for someone else's present. The past is only another name for someone else's present. Now, that's why he made this conclusion. History is a spacious realm That is, when we look at Paul the Apostle and these ten people that were closely associated with him, none of them could have understood, oh, but how powerfully the Holy Spirit was working, that actions they took in companionship to the Apostle Paul would have such an impact. So Dr. McCullough said, history is a spacious realm. There should be no walls. The wonder is how often events turn on a single personality or this quality called 
character. And that is exactly why I think, and I asked you to think about this briefly last week, that there these two lists of names, of this one list of names, there are two types, two categories. One are the two names that are addressed directly in Colossae. Nympha and the church that is in her house and Archippus, we talked about them. But then there are eight companions in the list that are in Rome. And in that list, we saw last week that Tychicus and Onesimus were these very, um, uh, very close companions of Paul. I think of them as the couriers, the courier and the companion of this letter. And the thing that I take away from those two is that their lives reflect for us something, again, this church needs. And every one of us needs individually. And that is to go the distance in our vital mission. That is, God has given us an incredible task. And that task is as simple as decisions to give the gospel to others lovingly, openly, welcoming people around us with the love of Christ. But then there's two others I want to focus on today for a few moments. And those are, out of the list, Aristarchus and Epaphras. And again, I know these names are not familiar, so it sounds like, wow, um, why are these people important in any way? And you know, when we, if we even ask that question, we're revealing the very reason we need this chapter. <laughs> because God has placed people in this church body. I got to thinking, too, about many of the people in this church body who bring such encouragement to me, the personal impact of that is huge. I've got to thinking, and many of you can, of people not in this church, but in other churches, and people you know, and friends in the kingdom. And I, I know of, of a friend right now I'm thinking of who, who has just brought repeatedly in my life over the last 33 years, um, my friend Austin Montague in Arizona, and sometimes they're watching with us, they could even be today, and Brother Austin and what he's brought into my life has been a permanent bond of friendship that has enriched my life immeasurably. But all of you could say the same. And Aristarchus has a unique role in this chapter, in this light, because Aristarchus has the distinction of being the one in the group that Paul describes as a fellow prisoner. And what's interesting about it is uh, the way that he... Um, the way that he describes this is that Paul refers to his imprisonment as a, an imprisonment for the, the glory of God as a bondservant. And when Paul talked about that, he was reflecting this decision in his own heart that said, I'm not going to take a way of escape when he chose to appeal to Caesar because of the principle of bringing the gospel to the imperial city, Paul knew he was signing on for a lot of hardship. And he knew, when he talked about his friend Aristarchus, that they were not just prisoners, but a certain type of prisoner. That is, Paul chose an unusual word for prisoner describing Aristarchus, and the word meant war prisoner or prisoner of war. There were three times in Paul's life where this guy, Aristarchus, was an, had a big impact on him. First of all, the first time that he's mentioned is in the middle of a riot. 
In Acts 19, the Apostle Paul has been preaching about the supremacy of Christ, the very truth we've seen in Colossians. And that truth of Christ being preeminent over human rulers and political systems and that our whole heart allegiance belongs to Jesus meant that people in Ephesus began bringing to a great bonfire their magical arts and their idolatrous uh, images and all the accoutrements and paraphernalia that went along with various kinds of sexual perversions and occultic practices and they burned scrolls and paraphernalia in a great fire and it was spontaneous the believers began saying we don't need this anymore in Christ there is a kingdom that calls for our total loyalty and the spontaneous move of God became so great that the silversmiths in the marketplace were the craftsmen that made the idols began to see their market evaporating less and less and less people were interested in coming to pay the price they wanted for their finely crafted idols and the silversmiths got together and began to protest and began to stir up some of the uh, the more hard-edged of the synagogue against Paul and they created a riot and in the midst of it, there are these names dropped in. Here's what it says in Ephesians, in Acts chapter 19. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions, and all of them rushed to the theater together. So here, this first time of Aristarchus alongside Paul is when, can you imagine if you were being beaten up, Senator Rand Paul and his wife Kelly were surrounded by a, uh, a crowd that was increasingly menacing about five years ago, and I heard him tell in detail what happened. Even the Secret Service outside the White House gates didn't know that he was a United States senator. They were just in a big crowd, and the, and the intensity of the attack pe began in such a way that people were surrounding Rand and his wife Kelly, and they literally feared for their very lives. It happened that a Washington, D.C. policeman was standing there who took uh, notice, and they told him, who they were and that they needed some protection and they very, very, at great, uh, great effort and at great risk, helped to kind of get them through that crowd and out of the right. Now, you'd be thankful for somebody who saved your life in a riot, wouldn't you? And Aristarchus was that kind of a guy for Paul. The second time that Aristarchus' life with Paul became so um, pivotal was that you can see it just traced on this map very quickly, that across the Mediterranean, when Paul had appealed to Caesar, then temporarily imprisoned on the west coast there of the land of Israel, uh, at Caesarea Philippi, waiting for a ship to take him all the way to Rome, Aristarchus was in that group. And that entire long red line that makes its way across to a stop at Crete, and then when they caught those, those winds, those favorable winds they thought off the island of Crete, it describes it in Acts 27, and the pilot decided to move on out with the winds and to kind of hug the shore of the, of, of the island of Crete, and yet then a sudden huge gale force wind started pushing them the wrong way. The ship's captain was not able to overcome the force of that wind, so they chose to just let the wind drive them out to sea. And that was the beginning in Acts 27 of this ship, of this long voyage that ended up after 14 days 
mostly of storm conditions of that entire ship being broken up into parts and the refugees landing on the island of Malta where God used Paul to perform a a miracle on a tribal chief's life. But Aristarchus, that guy, that guy mentioned in Colossians 4, he was there. He was not only there in the riot, he was there in the shipwreck. And I just propose that a deep bond of companionship enduring the shipwreck of Acts 27 was part of what fused these men in love as well as, of course, his status as an accused criminal. Essentially what happens then is Aristarchus takes on a charge himself that will have to be appealed before Caesar. And then another crucial three months in the 20th chapter of Acts, a little little parenthesis in the the narrative is a three-month time where the Apostle Paul had some temporary respite and peace and quiet to study. And in the three months, while Aristarchus was assisting him, Paul the Apostle penned in Greece the the absolutely indispensable epistle to the Romans. The epistle to the Romans written in that period of time while Aristarchus is seeing to it that Paul has what he needs. Now, these are just examples of one of many, and yet, for them, this is a clear pattern that each of us can experience in our lives. That we know there are tasks that each of us have been called upon to carry out that we cannot do unless God provides some other ordinary soul, born again, filled with the Holy Spirit, who walks aside us and along us. Now, alongside us. Now, I think of this Aristarchus story and, and then very quickly his other mention of Epaphras as examples of how we as the church and in our lives are really facing uncharted waters. You see, in the life of this one other person we'll touch on briefly, Epaphras, we have the kind of the embodiment of the kind of servant spirit that characterizes a healthy church. Now, many have speculated that because of the way he's mentioned, Epaphras is a kind of a pastor character of this story, that some have even some callers even refer to him as the pastor of the Colossian church. I don't read it that way personally. I see it more as this Epaphras is like all of these others in that he had a vital role in helping to establish the church, but the emphasis in the text is he's one among you, who labors in prayer for you. Three things I want you to see about him before we close today. One is, Epaphras was called a faithful servant of the Lord who told us of your love in the Spirit. You know, one of the ways that we can be faithful to one another and to this church and to our friends in the kingdom is we can just cultivate consciously an attitude of love. That may sound so simple. And yet, oftentimes, in the hurried lives we live, we forget how valuable it is just to express love to someone. You've all heard the joke, I'm sure, of the couple that went to marriage counseling and were having some deep difficulties, and a counselor happened to say to the guy, I think your wife would like to hear you say I love you. And he was a somewhat old, crusty farmer, a little bit set in his ways, a little bit old school, not very verbal. 
And he looks across the table and he says to the counselor, I told her I loved her 22 years ago. I ain't changed my mind since. (laughs) Well, that's a silly story. But the truth is it illustrates that love needs to be expressed. What's highlighted in Epaphras is he was verbal about the relationships that they valued. Sometimes words mean nothing, but other times words can carry a great sense of encouragement in our lives. But probably, seriously, the most important thing that we read about Epaphras is the content and intensity of his prayer and consistency of his prayer. And this is why, would you read aloud with me just this expression of what Epaphras did for these believers. Now remember, this is one of the ones who's in Rome coming and going and bringing messages to the Apostle Paul. He has traveled all the way back to Rome with messages from the Colossian people. And it's because of Epaphras that he knew the necessity of addressing the cosmic sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ and his wonderful redemptive power. And so you could say that Epaphras not only brought the word of their love, but it was Epaphras, a faithful servant, who brought to Paul the knowledge he needed for God to give him the role that was essential for all of eternity to spell out clearly the deity of Christ in these timeless and imperishable truths that the Bible tells us are living seed in our life. So would you read aloud with me the ongoing, the ongoing, the ongoing daily ministry of this guy named Epaphras. Let's read it aloud together. Always laboring earnestly that you may stand perfect, complete, and fully assured in the will of God. Think of that, that in all the will of God, prayer is part of the passionate purpose that enables us to express to God those things that we know we're lacking, those things that we, need, we know we need more of, and it is indeed at times, as we know, and as Colossians 4.12 tells us, it is indeed a wrestling Yes, prayer does involve a heart wrestling with the gap between what we know is God's will and the nitty-gritty reality that we face in difficult circumstances. And, And so if we ask, why the wrestling? Why should we, in prayer, what does it mean to wrestle in prayer? It doesn't mean that we that our human energy has any impact upon God. It's not our human energy. It's not about our energy. It's not about our intensity. No, the wrestling is because God, God's example in Epaphras shows us that we're not the only ones who wrestle with the gap between what we know is the will of God and what is actually happening. Now, too many people today, when they look at The flaws in churches, and we hear it all the time, the flaws in churches, the flaws in ministry, the things that are wrong, the things that are not right. There's a a very 
great temptation to become cynical and purely critical and simply, in fact, I've met a few people who I think, they think that their critical spirit is a gift of the spirit. It's not. Criticism is not a gift of the spirit. A gift of discernment is, but the capacity to just rip things apart and constantly criticize, that's easy stuff. That's low-hanging fruit. It takes a wrestler in the kingdom, a, a spiritual champion for the glory of God who looks at what is and realizes how inadequate it is and then looks at the will of God and like Epaphras, it's like, oh, just like you know the great Atlas that had the world on his shoulder, but a prayer person doesn't take anything on their own shoulder. A prayer person is a person who comes before the throne of God and realizes God You've given me a high and holy privilege to put into words what I'm wrestling with, what I want to see in my church, what I want to see in my life, what I want to see in my loved ones, what I want to see in my country. How many of us could just get totally deflated with the United States of America and look at the mess that our political system is in and say, what good does it do to pray? If we make that mistake, we're missing the wonderful example of Epaphras. I hope that as we close this Colossians Snapshot series, maybe one thing you could do with me is take a pen or a pencil or just mark it with your finger in your own Bible, that 11th and 12th verse, I'm sorry, 12th and 13th verse of Colossians 4. Note Epaphras and think of it like this. I could be, for my church and for my country, I could be like an Epaphras. You may say, oh, wait, Pastor, don't talk that way because you don't know me, Pastor. I don't feel very good about prayer. I don't feel like I pray very well. I'm not confident in my prayer. Oh, listen, these two verses, Colossians 4, 12, and 13, can give you a confidence you've never had before. Why? Because of wrestling. It tells us Epaphras wasn't happy about what he saw either. Epaphras was burdened, but he knew the release, the joy, the blessing of coming before God and saying, Lord, you taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And I believe Epaphras, like many of us can do with that Lord's Prayer, he could take those few sparse words that the Lord Jesus gave us in Luke chapter 11 and Matthew 6, and he could use them as a springboard to pray specifically about his country, and about his church, and about his neighborhood, and about his community, and about his family. And he can bring those very concise, powerful words of Jesus into manifest, multicolored form by saying, Thy kingdom come. Say it with me, could you? Thy kingdom come. Now say those next four words. Thy will be Done. Can we do those seven words aloud together one more time? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. When we pray it like Epaphras, we know there's a gap. We see the gap. Friends, when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. For the United States of America, we feel like we're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon <laughs> looking at a gap, don't we? We say, what a mess the political system is in. We say, what a mess the church is in, in many cases. 
And yet God says, be an Epaphras. Be somebody who gets in the middle of that mess <laughs> and says, thy, help me again, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. And you, ordinary soul, ordinary people, praying ordinary prayers because God in his extraordinary grace has placed you like Epaphras in the gap between the will of God and the nitty-gritty reality on the street. And you stand there and you pray and you believe God. And Paul says in that 13th verse, Paul goes on and says, I vouch for Epaphras I vouch for him that he's laboring over you. He's laboring. The word he used is a word that has within it the meaning of a pain that the prayer person enters into. But the beauty is he doesn't carry that pain because the pain is all given over to Jesus. My prayer in closing this today would be, that we could really believe God anew as people of prayer. Invite the example of Epaphras into your life. Many of us have an Aristarchus in our life. Somebody's come along, been with us in very hard times, been with us in trouble, and we've been bonded together. And we're fellow prisoners. And we all need an Epaphras in our life. And the beauty is we can all be an Epaphras. It doesn't take... It doesn't take a master's degree in prayer. The master's degree in prayer is talking to the master. Let's pray. Lord, I ask in Jesus' name today that we could um, step away now from these ordinary people on an extraordinary mission. And we could realize, Lord, what a beautiful thing it is that, what a beautiful thing it is that guys like these. Guys like uh, Aristarchus, who was just always there when Paul was in trouble and became a fellow prisoner himself, a prisoner in this war, this war, this war for the hearts and souls of people. And then, Lord, a guy like Epaphras. And as we, as we close the chapter of Colossians 4, I ask that we could go and think in our own context, our own community, of what it means to be people who see what's wrong. We look at the inadequacies of the church. We look at the inadequacies of our culture. We look at the gaps between even what many Christians profess, and we say, oh, there's too much hypocrisy among Christians. Yes and amen. But we don't stay in the critic's chair. We don't live in the seat of the scornful. We rise up like Epaphras, and we say, I step in the gap, I stand in the gap, and I pray for my friend, for my church, for my pastor, for my co-laborers. I pray for my brothers and sisters in the kingdom. I pray for missionaries. And yes, in a larger sphere, I pray for my country. And when I pray for those whom I can't even support, what they do, but I pray for them as people, as human souls, and I lift them before Almighty God. Like Epaphras, I step into that gap, and I say, Lord God, may this person 
or this organization or this company, may they may the kingdom of God intersect them in a way that they start experiencing the wonder of walking in the will of God. In Jesus' name. Just before the song starts, could you leave your eyes closed a moment more? Could you just lift a hand? If you just simply say a very simple invitation I want to give, and that is, is that I, I want to pray. And, it, and, if, and that hand lifted would mean you've always wanted to pray, but it would mean, yeah, 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 I get it. Just like Epaphras, I'm going to step into that gap, and I'm going to pray. Just lift a hand if you'd say, like Epaphras, I'm going to step into that gap, and I'm going to pray. I may not feel competent, but it's not counting on me. Like him, I'm going to step into that gap. Lift that hand once again. Leave it up for a minute. Let's leave it up as a way of saying yes to the Lord, saying yes. I'll say yes, Lord. I'll say yes, Lord. I'll say yes, Lord. I'll say, yes, Lord. Oh, Father, we know you can do mighty things in the hearts of people who simply say, yes, yes, amen.